Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, You will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We praise God for his holy word. Well, I've been, uh, I've been thinking about cars lately. This time last year, Marion and I were in the States, and we were in the States for about six months, and we drove a lot of cars, uh, borrowing different cars, renting different cars. Think about cars this week also because uh, Marion and I had toyed around with the idea of test driving one of the electric cars that China produces. China fast becoming, if not already, the leading producer of electric vehicles. But as an emerging industry leader, many of these electric vehicles, uh, people are a little suspicious. They're a little bit wary if you can trust the quality of these vehicles. Are they actually primed to be leading the market? And if you've ever shopped around for a new car, there's one thing that you'll learn. Although the analysts want to talk about if the cars are for real, although the literature that the sellers are producing and promoting for the cars is compelling, if you've ever shopped around for a new car, you will learn very quickly that cars aren't considered road-ready until they have been test-driven. Whatever the car company has to say about itself in its brochures or online, that's not enough. Whatever the analysts are talking about with the car, that's not compelling enough. For the buyer, everything really hinges on that independent test drive and preferably under very adverse conditions to know how the car is really going to perform. Because as buyers, we know that A car, especially on the streets of Shanghai, is going to experience a lot of adverse conditions, a lot of exacting conditions. We want to know if it's up to that test. 
as I was thinking about that this week and testing about proven competence, about road readiness. I was also thinking about that in relation to the passage that we have in front of us here of Jesus and his temptations in the wilderness. Because to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't really done anything yet, if you think about it. Jesus has been proclaimed by Matthew, the author, in his literature in a very compelling way as the son of Abraham. He inherits these promises that God gave to Abraham as he'll be receiving a people and a land. Big promotion. He's also been proclaimed as the son of David, of the royal line. It's a very high expectation to live up to as one who's called the son of David, royalty. Also up to this point in Matthew's gospel, as we saw last time in chapter 3, Jesus has also been described. He's described himself as saying, he is the one who's come to fulfill all righteousness, meaning he will live completely obediently under God's law. It's a pretty astounding claim to make. And if you flip back or just look a few verses back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3, you'll see that even God himself, if I can say it reverently, the divine number one spokesperson in the universe, has put his stamp of approval on Jesus saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's been a lot of promotion, you could say, of Jesus up until this point in the gospel, but if you stop and think about it, Jesus has been hailed and worshipped and recognized as king, but he has yet to prove his road readiness. And what our passage today shows us is that Jesus passes that test. Jesus comes and he proclaims by his deeds that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, As Messiah, my path leads to glory through humiliation and suffering. As we're going to see, Satan tried to divert him and distract him from following that path to the cross. But here in the wilderness, Jesus passes the road test as a humble and suffering Savior. This is a pivotal moment in God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ because it's only by entering into the very trials of humankind, as Jesus does here, identifying with his people in every way and their temptations that Jesus can emerge, you could say, as a new man to rescue and save his people. Now, friends, I think the main idea of this text is actually very simple. This sermon will probably be in some ways very simple, but it's, it's crucial that we grasp this. The main idea is that you need to follow Jesus because he has proven that he is a worthy Savior. It's very simple. Follow Jesus because he has proven that he is a worthy Savior. He has stood the test. He is road ready. And yet his test of faith shows that the path to your redemptive victory, 
that we're going to walk on along with Jesus through this gospel, that path must go through suffering and obedience. And that's what we see in our text today. Can I show that to you? First of all, verses 1 and 2, we see how Jesus is brought into that testing ground into the wilderness. It's interesting here, after his baptism, you know, week to week goes by, and sometimes I so quickly forget what came right before our passage. But after his baptism, Jesus is immediately led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? Notice, it's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness, The same spirit that fell on Jesus at his baptism, anointed him, and rested on him, is the same spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, it's because he is full of the spirit that he goes in to be tested. You could say that Jesus willingly, even courageously, desires to enter into the wilderness. This is his first act. And the wilderness is necessary, in fact, Why? Because the wilderness is a testing ground for God's people. That's what we read earlier in our service from Deuteronomy 8. That's why I wanted to read that, because if you know the context of that passage, God's people, Israel, have been in the wilderness. They've been thirsting and hungering, and they begin to doubt God's promises. The wilderness was a place of testing, as the passage said, to see what was in truly in their hearts. And we need to see when Jesus is tested, is he going to be like Israel was in the wilderness in the Old Testament or is something else in his heart? We want to know if he's ready to move on, so to speak, in his ministry. So teachers, we have several teachers here. Teachers, you know that when you give your students a test, that test is not meant to make them fail. You're not giving them a test because you want to see them fail. You give them a test because you want to see, have they been progressing? In fact, you desire to see through these tests that they're actually going to make it to the next level, so to speak. That they're equipped after your teaching to go on further in life. That's what tests do. They show what's in our character. They show what's in our heart, how we've been progressing. And so Jesus here And this test is not meant to make him fail, so to speak, from God's perspective, but to show just exactly how prepared he is for the ministry ahead. Now, notice this. If you look uh, look back in our text to say, you'll you'll see that in verse 2, after Jesus goes into the wilderness, it says he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. I bet he was. I mean... We had a great Thanksgiving lunch yesterday, and I got to say, uh, sometimes hard for me to make it to dinner even after that wonderful meal. Uh, but Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, he was fasting in the wilderness. Why? I mean, in an obvious sense, we fast because we want closer communion with God. But what is Jesus doing here? Now, Matthew, the writer, wants us to see that Jesus is sort of replaying, as it were, what Israel went through in those years in the wilderness. Forty years for God's people in the wilderness of Israel. Jesus identifying with them. Forty days and nights in his fasting in the wilderness. So we need to think of Jesus' wilderness test here in light of what Israel experienced. 
the wilderness and redemptive history is an interesting place for people of God and Israel. It was a place, it was an in-between place. They came out of Egypt, but they had not yet entered the promised land. It was neutral territory, so to speak, where God could do his work in them. The wilderness was also a place of sanctification. After God brings his people out of Egypt, he teaches them. He says, if you're going to enter into the promised land, you need to know how to live with me. He gives them his holiness code in the wilderness. The place of the wilderness is also a place of new creation where God refashions his people. God's Old Testament people getting the Egypt out of them, so to speak, as they're recreated into a people so that they can enter the promised land. But most importantly for our text here, the wilderness is a place of testing, as I've already said. It's here where the Lord tested Israel. It's here where it's a proving ground to see his people are, are faithful to God. God uses the wilderness to prove by experiment what their faith is really made of. Faith must be tested. Think of that testing. I think of, I think of glass. If you know glass, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, uh, I don't study these sorts of things, physics or chemistry or anything like that. But from what I've read and heard, glass, just sort of untreated on its own, is very brittle, very fragile, can break very easily. And so the way to strengthen glass is to temper it. Let's go through a process of tempering. That means the glass, you take it, you heat it to a very high temperature, about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit or 650 degrees Celsius. And as you do that, the glass is expanding, it's, it's loosening, it's getting quite volatile, in fact, as it's heated to higher and higher temperatures. It's loosening, and what glass makers do is that they blow it up at such a high temperature to the point where it's also almost going to break apart, and then they fire it with really hot air, really cold air. They blast it with cold air at that point, just before it breaks. And then the glass sort of contracts again, and it forms a layer of strengthened glass. And then they heat it back up again. They fire it again with really hot temperature of air and fire. The glass expands and loosens again, again to the point where it's almost going to shatter or break or explode. And then they, then they blast that cold air, again, shrinking it. And they go through this process several times. And as that glass is expanding and shrinking and contracting and growing, it's forming these strengthened layers over and over and over and it comes to be a very strong, unbreakable glass. That's tempering the glass, a process of tempering so the glass is stronger than ever. Well, that's what's happening in this testing in the wilderness. It's a tempering, it's a tempering furnace. It's here that the Lord tempers Jesus, his son. It's a test. Spirit leads Christ courageously ventures into the wilderness so that he could be tried by temptation. And having passed the test, the tempering, he emerges as God's Messiah, the messenger and redeemer. So just look at this, this three tests, these, this furnace of tempering that Jesus passes through here in verses 11, uh, 3 through 11, excuse me. 
Just as Israel passed through the waters of baptism at the Red Sea and emerged, went into the wilderness, so too Christ, after he's baptized in chapter 3, emerges and then goes immediately into the wilderness where he's tempered three times. And notice this, put your eyes on here, verses 3 and 4, the first tempering process, the first temptation is the temptation to doubt God's provision. Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I said just a moment ago, it's you know, week to week I sometimes forget what came immediately before this. In chapter 3, what did God just say? In chapter 3, verse 17, he said, This is my beloved Son. And then immediately the devil comes and says, Really? Is that really true? Are you really going to believe that? If you are the Son of God, he says. It's a satanic if. If you are the Son of God. Trying to sow doubt right there. Similar to what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden when God created all things and immediately the serpent comes and tests them and says, God, did God actually say? Well, when Jesus is tempted here, what he needs to do is immediately affirm his heavenly father's words and not doubt them. He needed to trust his father's words and not a miracle at the bidding of the devil to confirm his identity. And so Jesus' response to the temptation shows us what the, what, um, the point of the temptation truly is. Jesus says in verse 4, he answers him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, if you know the context of this passage, I've, I've already mentioned it. Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Again, that's when Israel is in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they hunger, they thirst. And the point of that passage, Deuteronomy 8, is that God supplies all the needs of Israel, his people. So he can do that apart from natural processes. The point of that passage is that Israel needed to humble themselves to see that there is actually more to life than bread. That human life is not confined to meeting our physical needs, although that's important. A life only sustained by physical bread is, in fact, a poor life. What God was trying to teach his people then and showing through Jesus' temptation here is that we need to depend on life, or depend on God for all things. That he is, in fact, the one who sustains all things. What he was teaching his people Israel is to not look to the bread, but to look to him as the source of life, the source of comfort, the source of leading and provision. That was the test. Are they just going to live on physical bread or are they going to live on the hand of God, trusting him every single day, looking to him for all things that necessary for life? And Israel failed that test. And don't we see in our lives every day failings to trust in God and his provision? And this is why in our sinful hearts we often desire to steal. We covet what other people have. This is why many people take from others because they don't trust that God is going to be able 
to provide for their daily needs. We have to take it upon ourselves to do so. But here we have Jesus. Jesus is led into the wilderness, the same testing ground as Israel. And so the test comes. He's driven to hunger. In fact, to the brink of starvation, 40 days is about the max that any human being can survive without food. And what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to take it upon himself? Is he going to take over for God as it were? No, Jesus withstands the temptation. The point of this temptation from the devil's point of view is really to move Jesus out of his faith in God, to not depend on God, because turning the stones into bread would be a way to exalt himself and not to succumb to the suffering that he was going through. The devil really wants to tempt Jesus to doubt God's challenge, or to, to doubt and challenge God's confirmation of his identity. See, Satan says to Jesus, You lack, you're in poverty, you suffer. You have nothing to sustain your life. God doesn't care about you. So you need to care about yourself. You can't depend on God. You can only depend upon yourself, he says to Jesus. And Jesus answers, though, the way that the first Adam should have answered, the way that Israel should have responded. He says, Satan, you're a liar. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Poverty and hunger and thirst, hardship, suffering, never canceled out all of God's grace and mercy to the Israelites for 40 years. They'll never cancel out in your life either. We know that because Jesus withstood this temptation. God will never cast his people away from his providential care. That's the faith that Jesus practices here. The faith in God, his father, that he will endure knowing that God will provide for all of his needs and he doesn't have to take it upon himself. Jesus learned obedience through that suffering, which is, of course, what life, a life of faith is all about. Jesus is tempered by this test of provision, he completely relies on God to provide for his needs. But Jesus is tempered in a second way here. You can see it in verses 5 through 7. This is the temptation to test God. It says here in verses 5 and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God. So notice again, Still trying to sow doubt in what the Father has already proclaimed. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But does God exist? Is he really there? If he is, does God have the power to rescue and deliver? If he says he does, do you believe him? How can you know? How can you be sure? How do you know God's for real? And this is the sort of thinking that I think Satan, the devil, is sowing in Jesus, or trying to, 
Because Satan would have Jesus believe that the only way to know for sure that God exists, the only way to know for sure that God is true to his word is if you test what he said. To see it for yourself. You have to have some sort of experience and then you can have faith. You can actually rest on what God says after you have experienced something. And then notice that the devil uses Scripture itself, he, he, he hears Jesus quote Scripture, and so in his second temptation, he tries to use Scripture himself for his own purposes. He quotes from Psalm 91, this quotation. Interestingly, though, he leaves out a part of it. It should read, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. A meaning that if you trust in God, you can trust that he's laid out a plan for you and he'll bring it to completion. You can trust his word, but the devil twists scripture to turn, on, turn it on its head and mean something completely the opposite. He's using scripture to say, no, 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 you must test God's word and then you will know it's true. He's trying to tempt Jesus into saying, you can't believe God on faith alone. God will deliver you, you have to see that before you can believe it. What was Israel's besetting sin? What were they plagued with? It was a sin of unbelief. They constantly failed to believe God's word. Jesus reminds us here in his response to the devil's second temptation that their unbelief is what repeatedly God was trying to teach them out of. The reason why he brought them into the wilderness was to reveal to them their own sin of unbelief and to cause them to throw themselves on God and his word. And so at Massa and Meribah, where the Israelites were thirsty and hungry and tired, the Lord said that he would provide for them. He he purposely brought them to this point of extreme hunger and starvation. He wanted them to see what their reaction would be. And what is their reaction? They cry out because they have no water to drink, and they grumble. They complain. That's what the text says. And they even had the gall to ask, is God with us or not? Is he really there? We don't believe it for sure. We need a test. We need to have some sight of God's existence that he'll provide for us. They demanded evidence. You know, sometimes... Atheists or agnostics, if they debate with you as a Christian, you know, maybe they'll say, well, I would, I would believe in God if only he would just show up right now and reveal himself. You know, that would put an end to the debate, right? In fact, by denying God's existence and testing him, they're only condemning themselves further in their unbelief. God would not be God if he capitulated to all of our demands as sinful human beings. That was Israel's problem. They made demands of God that he operate according to their way, according to their schedule. What God was wanting to teach them, what he wants to teach us, is that we live by faith and not by sight. Is the Lord there? Will he deliver? How can you know? Well, we answer the way that Jesus answers. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. How can you know for real this, you know, the devil wants Jesus to throw himself off of this 
temple building to test God, that God would save him, and that'd be the way that Jesus would know and be able to trust his father's promises. But had Jesus taken this leap off of the temple, and if God had saved him, I'm not, I'm not certain, that, certain that God would have, and Jesus would have gone on to ministry that day, he would have continued after this, not with his confidence in God and his word, but his confidence in this experience that he had had by throwing himself off of a temple. He would have gone forward not in the assurance of God's protection, not with a trust in God, his father, to preserve him from danger, but with this memory of a one-time miraculous event, an experiment. His sense of safety, in other words, that day on, would be in depending on himself and what he was able to achieve that day. Jesus doesn't fall for this test, doesn't fall for this temptation. He shows that God desires that his people know him and trust him by sight, not by sight, not by self-serving demands, but by faith. So we as Christians are servants of God. As servants of God, we don't get to make demands of him that he would keep intervening with miraculous provisions in our needs. If we did, that would flip religion on its head from us serving God to God serving us. But do you trust that God is there? Do you trust that he is real? Do you trust that he will provide? Do you trust that he will protect you? We trust that we do because his word says that he will. That he'll never fail to keep his promises. Jesus passes this test of dependability on God. He's tempered again to believe in God's word and not test God and asking for these foolish experiences. That brings us to the third test. The temptation to do evil that good might result, verses 8 through 11. We see a third test here, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Right here we see Jesus casting out the first evil spirit. It's the first demonstration of victory over the devil. And we're going to see it again and again throughout the gospel of Jesus casting out evil spirits. But notice here, there's Jesus is taken up, it says, to a very high mountain. I think, uh, you know, of course, there's no single mountain in the entire world where you can see all the kingdoms of the world so we, we must take this to believe that this was some sort of wilderness vision that Jesus experienced. And unlike the other two temptations, which were more disguised, though, this temptation is very in-your-face, isn't it? Uh, the other two were kind of beating around the bush, so to speak. But here, the devil really just gets in Jesus' face and says, bow down and worship me. It's a temptation to open sin. Are you, Jesus, are you, going to, are you going to fall to Satan worship or are you going to worship God? Whose Messiah, in other words, is Jesus going to be? 
Whose glory is he going to serve? Now, while it might seem on the face of it, this is kind of an absurd temptation. I mean, come on, Satan. Come on, Del. Are you really, you really think Jesus is going to fall for this? We need to understand what's behind this temptation. It's not, it is, it is false worship, but there's something behind it when you stop and think about it. Because Jesus has a goal, doesn't he? He has a mission that he's been given. But the temptation he's presented here is that he can reach that goal regardless of whatever master he serves. So long as that master can help him to achieve that goal, he can go whatever way he wants in a sense, right? So would he be God's Messiah who has laid out a path for him to humiliation and suffering all the way to the cross before exaltation? Or can he just bypass all that? And immediately have all the kingdoms of the world that he has been promised. I mean, all three of these temptations are really doing that. All three temptations are really saying to Jesus, you can shortcut all of this humiliation and suffering that, that, is, that is in front of you right now. You have at least three years, Jesus, of real hardship, not to mention the cross. Why don't you just sidestep that? And you can have it all right now. Just one little bow of the knee before the devil, and it's, and it's all yours. Wouldn't that achieve a similar end? So you can see the real temptation here is that Jesus do evil so good might result. But we, what we need to see here is that when God appoints us to a task, when he gives us a job to do, we're to complete it according to his rules and in his ways, the ways that glorify him. We're also to see that Jesus willingly obeyed in doing that. That he never sidestepped his mission. And if he had, he would not have been like us in every single way. He would not have obeyed God's perfect laws in his active obedience, doing everything that God's law requires, but also in his his inactive obedience, his passive obedience, of receiving all the suffering and shame that we deserve for our sin. That Jesus doesn't bypass God's plans. He patiently trusts that God's plan will be worked out through him, even if it means walking this path of humiliation and suffering. But just doing evil that good might result is a heinous sin, and Jesus does not fall for that temptation. You know, there are several good biblical examples where uh, other people have been presented with the same temptation. Uh, one I think of is David. Remember, David was selected among his brothers um, to be king. Samuel, you remember, visits Jesse's sons, and God points out that David is going to be the king after Saul. And David is anointed by Samuel, but David has to wait for a long time before he can take the throne. And in that time, Saul Saul oppresses David. He hunts David. He, he repeatedly tries to murder David. David is forced to flee. He's staying in caves, running for his life. And at one point, though, you remember that David and his men are hiding in a cave. And as David is hiding there with his men, lo and behold, who comes in? Saul himself. He's going to relieve himself. And David's men say to him, David, now's your chance. You can murder Saul now and the throne is yours. Just take it. David's reply is, Basically, you know, touch not the Lord's anointed. This is God's anointed king. I am not going to resort to an evil 
means of murder in order that good might result. God knows better than I do. God has a plan far greater than I can imagine. David patiently waits for God's timing for God to raise him to the throne. And in that sense, of course, uh, David is a figure of a greater king who is to come. When Jesus comes, he's presented this temptation by Satan, by the devil. With all the kingdoms, this can be yours now, Jesus. Just bow the knee, commit this act of idol worship, Satan worship, and it's all yours. But Jesus... Experiencing this test proves himself to be a road-ready Messiah, you could say. He doesn't give in to this temptation. He trusts in God's perfect timing. He trusts that all the kingdoms of the world will be his as God has promised, not that he needs to take it upon himself selfishly. And so he gives this response to Satan, again, demonstrating his authority, but also his Trust his faith indeed of God his Father. Verse 10, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's entirely appropriate then in verse 11, after Jesus withstands these three tests, that angels then come and minister to Jesus in his starved and tired and lonely state. You know, notice that even in verse 11, when these angels come, it's the, you know, Satan had tempted Jesus to call for the angels in his second temptation. But here in verse 11, Jesus doesn't even have to call for them. God knows in his timing what Jesus needs when he needs it. And so after passing these tests, God sends his angels to minister to Jesus in his hunger and, in fact, close to starvation. In Luke's account of Jesus' testing, the same a story, he closes it by saying, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I believe Luke there uh, pointing out that Jesus, this is not the last time that he's going to be tempted, of course. Throughout his life, right, Jesus is tempted. But especially here we're shown that he is the promised Messiah because He is able to withstand every single temptation. He never chose the path of self-glory through sin. He chose the path of humiliation, even going to the cross, and he never failed to trust in his heavenly Father. Jesus passes these tests. That's what you need to see. With all the other things that we could learn from this passage, his path to the cross and to salvation is going down this road of of humiliation. Now we can see here that there's no worse enemy than the devil. There's many wicked people in the world doing many heinous things. There's many nations and rulers that perpetuate evil crimes, social ills that are plaguing society, all kinds of problems in this world, but there's no enemy like the devil. The devil is unseen. The devil never sleeps. The devil never dies. He can follow us wherever we go. He is a prowling lion seeking someone to devour, as Peter says. And if we're to overcome the devil, we must continually be on our guard. But although there is no enemy like the devil, there is no savior like Jesus. 
There's no savior greater than Jesus because Jesus is victorious over every single temptation of the devil, proving that he is the Messiah. Jesus had to go to the wilderness. He was willing and even joyously went into the wilderness to show you that he is ready to complete this task in front of him. He passes this test because we have failed it. You and I have failed it. Israel had failed it. Adam had failed it. We need one who has never failed, who can overcome our greatest enemy, and that is Jesus. What the text is telling you this afternoon, the argument from this passage is very simple. Jesus is a worthy Savior. He's withstood the test. Are you willing to let him drive your life? Are you willing, are you going to trust him then to completely navigate your world? Are you going to believe that he can steer and manage every single part of your life? Follow Jesus because he has proven that he is a worthy savior. He has been tempered. He has passed the test. He's road ready. So follow him. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for showing us more of Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we think upon this text, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. We ask that you'd help us to to love him more dearly. We pray, Father, that we would live on your word every single day. Help us to fight temptations that would pull us away from, from Christ. Help us to fight temptations to disbelieve your word, to disbelieve you. And instead, Father, help us to see how there's no greater Savior than one who has lived a life that we were unable to. And he leads us to salvation when we trust in him. We thank you, Father. We pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's respond to God's word by singing together Psalm.